Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 11th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how a new branding program could put Mississippi products on the map. And what could President Trump's Supreme Court nomination mean for Mississippi statute? A law professor weighs in. If one thought of their job as to follow the law, then you would not expect the judge eager to overturn Supreme Court precedent. Everybody says they're going to follow the law. No judge says, I want to get on the Supreme Court to make the law. Then, what can be done to help students protect their health? An advocate weighs in on the latest statistics. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new statewide branding initiative called Genuine Mississippi aims to promote products created or produced by Mississippi farmers, artisans, entrepreneurs, and manufacturers. The membership program developed by the State Department of Agriculture and Commerce has four classifications, Mississippi grown, raised, crafted, and made. Commissioner of Agriculture and Commerce Andy Gibson tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the purpose is to increase public awareness of Mississippi's products. I have been traveling for this past summer, uh, in fact right in the middle of uh, the growing season here in Mississippi, traveling to various farms around the state, uh, up in the Delta, cotton, corn, soybeans, uh, you've got uh, sweet potatoes, you've got uh, you've got Cattle, of course. Poultry is our number one industry in the state. Timber, pine trees everywhere. So many, in fact, that we, we don't have enough markets for them. We need to find some more outlets for that. But you have uh, right here in Mississippi, from catfish, something that's broadly utilized as catfish and sold around the country and around the world, to uh, seasonal crops like Smith County watermelons. You can't get a Smith County melon anywhere but right here in Mississippi. We have a lot to be proud of, a lot to be excited about. Vegetables, produce, you think about all those different things that we produce as Mississippians, and we're literally feeding the world, and not many people stop and think about that. And then you have the communities that I'm meeting across the state who are wanting to buy locally. Now, how can we buy more local produce and more local products? We want to support Mississippi and things that are not only grown or raised here in the, in the agriculture community, but things that are crafted, foods that are created by crafts, artisans and uh, uh, entrepreneurs, and then things that are manufactured. So it really does touch the life of every Mississippian, and we want to promote it and make sure people know where they can do just that. Why Genuine Mississippi? Why did you decide to name it that? We had a team of people uh, who were working, as I mentioned, to come up with a brand that would be uniquely Mississippi and quickly recognizable. And the genuine Mississippi brand, of all the options we looked at, it has the outline of the state in the, in the brand. Uh, it, it got everyone's attention on our marketing team, and we said, this is it. Uh, it is easy to communicate. It applies to everything. You can apply it to any product out there that is grown, raised, crafted, or made, and it transcends uh, any any uh, uh, confusion. It, it, it is very clear. So for those who may want to become a member, um, what's the website they should visit, and are there any requirements they should be aware of? www.genuineMS.com is the website, genuineMS.com. 
and they can go there. The, the requirements are there for things that are manufactured. They have to be at least 51% manufactured in the state of Mississippi. Things that are grown here, obviously crops that are grown here, produce that's grown here, livestock that's raised, honey. Uh, you think about anything that's raised, uh, bees right here in Mississippi, crafted food products, uh, arts and crafts can be a part of genuine Mississippi. We want this to be as broad as it can be, and if they, uh, if they meet those criteria, they can sign up online. It's simply a $75 annual fee, and your Department of Agriculture will take it from there. We'll be promoting them here and around the world. Commissioner of Agriculture and Commerce Andy Gibson with MPB's Ashley Norwood. For more information on Genuine Mississippi, visit GenuineMS.com. Coming up, what could President Trump's Supreme Court nomination mean for Mississippi Code? A law professor weighs in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Whitney Houston was one of the best-selling music artists of all time. A new documentary about her looks at what was going on behind the scenes, from drug abuse to financial problems, even allegations of sexual abuse by a famous family member. We'll talk to the director of Whitney. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Demonstrators in several Mississippi cities are speaking out against the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. President Donald Trump announced the nomination Monday. Demonstrators in Jackson, Hattiesburg, and Gulfport rallied around issues such as abortion rights and the rights of same-sex partners to marry. Mississippi College School of Law professor Matt Steffi is not affiliated with the marches. He says if Kavanaugh is confirmed, Mississippi could be impacted in a number of ways in future high court decisions. Well, under our Constitution, specifically Article 3, Supreme Court justices serve for life on the highest court in the land. It oversees all the federal courts and oversees in terms of constitutional law, all state courts as well. And so it has the final say on the meaning of federal law and the Constitution nationwide. And because the justices serve for life, and because there are so many important issues turn on constitutional law, there's great attention paid to each individual nominee. Because if this particular nominee is confirmed, uh, he may serve for 30 years or more. What was interesting to me is that Judge Kavanaugh, who by all accounts is like Justice Roberts, a well-liked, amiable, pleasant person with friends on both sides of the aisle. He worked with the Kenneth Starr investigation against President Clinton. He worked inside the Bush White House. He worked on the recount uh, litigation in Florida that ultimately led to the Supreme Court decision that ushered President Bush into office. If there's been a major legal issue in the past generation, Judge Kavanaugh was uh, there on the conservative side before he became a judge. When Brett Kavanaugh accepted the nomination, he said, my judicial philosophy is straightforward. A judge must be independent. It must interpret the law and not make the law. What does that mean? Well, that's a cliché. And that's a cultivated way of speaking that's been done very intentionally 
over a 30-year period by conservative legal activists. And it's fallen into the public discourse. Everybody says they're going to follow the law. No judge says, I want to get on the Supreme Court to make the law. What seems to be a major concern or of interest to the American public is Roe versus Wade and whether yeah. that can be overturned. Now, that is law. That's the law of the land now and has been for decades. So if the Supreme Court follows the law, the thought is that a conservative court will overthrow that law. That's the paradox now, isn't it? That uh, if if my job is to follow the law and there's a 50-year-old precedent, I would have to be overwhelmingly persuaded that it was wrong in the beginning and has been wrong every day since to be able to to vote to overturn it. But that's the power Supreme Court justices had. Judge Kavanaugh would not have been selected of the activist groups, the the folks that are spending seven and eight figure sums to support these causes and to support his nomination. That advocacy wouldn't be there. He wouldn't have been selected. That money wouldn't be there if those groups didn't believe that his philosophy would lead him to overturn perhaps Roe versus Wade to overturn perhaps the Obergefell decision. And that's why I say it's a cliche. If if one thought of their job as to follow the law, then you would not expect the judge eager to overturn Supreme Court precedent. It's also been done with a with a more liberal court. Oh yes, of course. When I say it's a cliche, it's a cliche when every judge says it. That's the power of the Supreme Court. They and they alone can take a second look and decide to reverse course. There's a reason if we were talking about President Hillary Clinton, there would be a stable of nominees that would be expected to nudge things in a progressive direction. All of those nominees would say they, too, were there to follow the law, to be that they are committed to the rule of law, that they want to pursue justice. Those things simply mean different things to different people. That's why we're going to spend months digging into his record to determine what those cliches mean to him. How might his influence on the Supreme Court affect Mississippi laws like religious freedom or abortion at 15 weeks, as well as immigration? There's always an element of speculation. But if he is the conservative stalwart that certain groups hope he is, Roe versus Wade will be so severely curtailed or overturned that you might expect Mississippi's one abortion clinic to close or to operate in an extremely restricted fashion. You might see the return where Mississippi doesn't have to recognize gay marriage. Immigration, it's difficult to predict because on the one hand, Judge Kavanaugh has expressed skepticism at the power of administrative agencies. On the other hand, He's expressed very broad views of presidential power. And so what we might expect on the immigration front is to curtail legal barriers to immediate removal of undocumented immigrants. Again, it's going to take some time for these things to play out because the Supreme Court's power, while it's profound, they really only have the power to to call a halt to actions government is taking. For example, Mississippi has a ban on abortion. The court can only act to halt it. It can't institute a ban. It can halt a ban on gay marriage. It can't institute a ban. It can halt certain actions with regard to immigration 
but it can't institute those things. So it is profound, but it is still a check and balance on what other organs of government are doing, state and federal. But this is going to highlight in the upcoming conversation that nationwide, the landscape for access to abortion, particularly for poor women, particularly in the South, might be severely curtailed. That LGBT equality might be much less than it is today. Religious freedom is already at an, at an apex. It, that, that change, I think, would be more modest, at least in the short run. Matt Steffi is a professor of constitutional law at Mississippi College School of Law. Thank you, Matt. It's always my pleasure, Karen. Coming up, what can be done to help students protect their health? An advocate weighs in on the latest statistics after a Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Can't stick around for the rest of the show? You can always catch up by logging on our website at mpbonline.org or use the MPB Public Media app on your mobile device. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. So here's a study about a chronic disease that affects a lot of people, particularly here in the South and Mississippi, uh, and that's diabetes. Most people with diabetes have a higher risk of stroke and heart attack. Uh, oftentimes they have other healthcare conditions like hypertension and cholesterol problems. You know, if you think about controlling a chronic disease, there's a lot of things that in preventive medicine that you want to prevent happening. But also, it's very dependent upon how well they're going to be able to get the resources for that. And nobody really thinks about that, particularly if you go to the physician. You know, rarely will your physician say, hey, tell me how you're doing with your medications. Are you able to get those? And a lot of physicians, particularly physicians in training, don't feel comfortable doing that. I I think it's one of the things we need to ask and not make any kind of assumptions because healthcare costs can be extremely high. About 45% of patients with diabetes have skipped their care because they weren't able to afford medications or other costs that were incurred because of their illness. And about the same number of people, 43%, they paid up to $1,000 out of pocket in the past year for treating some of these complications. The American Diabetic Association, they recently reported that the average diabetic incurs about $9,600 uh, into diabetes-related medical care expenses every year. Oral medications, they can they can run up there, too. There are a lot of newer medications. Mostly uh, newer medications are higher in cost. Uh, generic medications may be appropriate. When you go back to them, say, Doc, I can't afford this. This is, uh, this is breaking the bank. Is there anything that we can do that's a more cost-effective? Uh, your physician may probably know how to do that. Um, and, or if they don't, they should be able to... Uh, to consult some people. Of, you know, you're going to have the best medication in the world for a chronic disease, uh, whether that's diabetes or asthma or high blood pressure. But if the patient can't take it because of whatever reason, can't take it multiple times a day, can't afford it, and just knowing these numbers that on average it may be anywhere from 1000 to $5,000 a year 
that you may have to budget in. And think about how much it costs you as it relates to what you can do for diabetes also. So there's a lot of things that you might can do to decrease the amount of medications or you know a lot of the other procedures that need to be done. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy, live blue. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Fewer high school students are having sex, according to the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports the number of high school students who have had who have ever had sex has declined from 48 percent in 2007 to 40 percent nationwide in 2017. The CDC didn't collect enough data from Mississippi students for the most recent survey, but in 2015 found 48 percent of Mississippi high school students said they never had sex. That means more than 50 percent may have had sex. Dr. Frida Bush is an OBGYN and member of the governor's Teen Pregnancy Prevention Task Force. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier she recommends sexual risk avoidance or abstinence. What I recommend is the healthiest behavior for youth is to avoid the risk or the behaviors that would put them at risk, such as uh, sexual activity, such as you know, alcohol or drug use. And specifically speaking with sexual activity, we know that the only way to avoid the risk of sexual activity is not participate, the same as drugs and alcohol. If you don't drink, if you don't have sex, then that's the safest way to avoid the risk. Because even if you reduce the risk by using a condom or contraception, they're not 100%. You can still get infection with a condom. You can still get um, consequences of drug use, even if you reduce it to, you know, one drink. Your risks are still there. So using a condom reduces your risk but does not eliminate the risk. And there is no condom for the heart. There is no condom that is 100%. What would so, you say to critics who say that is an idealistic way to look at the problem that uh, the nation has with young people uh, because they're seeing sex on TV, it's in the music, they are experimenting and they are having sex, and that approach is not going to eliminate what they're seeing, which is a higher risk of sexually transmitted diseases. So there have to be some measures taken to prevent it, even though you might want to teach them along with other things, sexual risk avoidance, but that can't be the answer. The latest YRBS shows that there is a decrease in teen sexual activity. And I believe one of the reasons is because we're beginning to teach it more, that there are other ways to have fun and enjoy without being sexually active. There is also an element of this survey that found that young people are experiencing a greater amount of sadness and hopelessness. How is that connected with sexual activity or 
And as a doctor, is there a connection between those two? Well, it's actually been found that those students who are sexually active are more likely to experience those behaviors or those feelings that you just described than the ones who are not sexually active. So that's another plus for avoiding sex or delaying sex until you are older, more mature, or until you are in a committed, mutually monogamous relationship. And that's very unusual for teenagers to be committed that early. Dr. Frida Bush. Despite a reduction in teen pregnancies, state health department stats show Mississippi still has the third highest rate in the nation. Hope Crenshaw is executive director of Teen Health Mississippi. She explains to our Desiree Frazier how some state restrictions affect sex education. I find um, sex education to be limiting in terms of the law. So um, school districts get to decide whether or not they are able to teach sex education um, that's ab only or ab plus. And so someone who, youth who may be neighboring in neighboring counties may not get the same access to information and to resources. And that can really be damaging. And so we believe um, at Teen Health Mississippi that all youth have a right to high-quality information about their health because it impacts their lives and it impacts um, the quality of the decisions they can make. And so I think there, there is where our greatest limitation is. And the abstinence plus, what can you teach them that will effectively help them to be more responsible? In abstinence plus education, classrooms can talk about um, contraceptive options, but they can also talk about relationships they can talk about maybe refusal skills and just have how to have open conversations, how to have that open dialogue. But again, the, the real difference is making sure that whether youth are um, choosing to be abstinent, practice abstinence, whether youth are choosing to or and in, and in some situations it may not necessarily be a choice, but whether students are engaging in sexual activity or whether students have engaged in sexual activity and now they wish to stop that they have all the information and access to information and resources to make those decisions. Do you find that this is effective, an effective approach? Being able to give youth, again, access to information about their bodies is very effective in that when they don't necessarily know all the strategies and all the skills, and in addition to information about their bodies, information about what does a positive relationship look like, what is consent, um, what is sexual assault, information about body confidence, I think they're able to make a wide array of choices and decisions that are more informed than if they had not had that information. Mississippi has very high rates of STDs among youth. Do you think that with more sex education, that would combat those numbers? Absolutely. Again, we've seen across the nation in those areas that have laws that allow youth to have comprehensive sex ed or sex education that's medically accurate, age appropriate, um, and that's high quality, we're seeing those numbers decrease. And in spaces that offer ab plus education in the state of Mississippi, we're seeing like youth being responsive to that information. And I think that once we are able to get that across the state, I think we'll begin to see a shift in those types of numbers. In addition to having that information, 
which is number one, is key. It's also working with healthcare agencies to make sure that when a youth comes to them and says, okay, I may have an STI, that they know how to talk to the youth appropriately, that they understand confidentiality, they understand that minors have rights, and that they respect those rights. Well, Hope Crenshaw with Teen Health Mississippi, we appreciate your insight. Oh, this is my pleasure. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.